Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Dave Ansell. And first up, let's take a look at what's been happening, scientifically speaking, around the world this week. Dave, what have you got for us? Scientists have come up with a new washing machine resistant coat. Now, waterproof clothing has been getting a lot more comfortable over the last 20 years with the invention of various breathable fabrics. I'm glad scientists are working on important things. <laughs> it makes my life an awful lot more comfortable when walking up in the hills. I don't know about anything else. One common strategy is to make the fabric a very water repellent or hydrophobic. This means that despite the fact that it's covered in holes, so water vapour from sweat can escape, water droplets can't get through because they're bigger than the holes. The bigger the holes, the more breathable the fabric is. But so I get it. So Sorry to interrupt, but what you're saying is that if you've got a fabric with lots of little holes, water vapour, which is molecules, can go through. But because literally bubbles of water, droplets, are big and they're sticky, they're not able to break up to become small enough to go the wrong way through the holes. Yeah, if the fabric is repelling the water. But that's, that's not new. I mean, Gore-Tex and things like that have been around for years that work like that, haven't they? That's right, but they're quite water repellent. But um, new materials have been coming up recently which are called super hydrophobic. These are really, really water repellent. Um, I've seen videos of this. You can get a droplet of water and drop a droplet of water on the surface and it actually bounces. It doesn't wet, it doesn't stick, it just bounces off the surface. The problem is that these super hydrophobic coatings are normally quite... Um, fragile. So you might have a beautifully waterproof coat um, one day which is incredibly breathable but as soon as you put it in the washing machine it loses all of its properties. But Bo Deng and colleagues at the Shanghai Institute of Applied Physics have been working on this. Um, they've taken a commercially available superhydrophobic coating, essentially a heavily fluorinated ac- acrylate polymer. Instead of adding some kind of catalyst to cause the acrylate monomer to join up and form a big long chain molecule called a polymer, they irradiated cotton soaked in the solution of this monomer with gamma rays. And sometimes the gamma ray will hit the cotton, and this will cause some damage to the cotton, at which point monomer can come and stick onto that cotton, and then it can start growing a polymer, actually physically covalently attached oh, the cotton, to the That's polymer. clever. So rather than making a sheet, which you would then have a sheet of the hydrophobic material, which you then glue onto the cotton, and that's obviously weak because the two can separate and break up in the way you say, you're actually coming up with a chemical strategy to glue the monomer molecules onto the cotton in certain places, literally fix them on, and then new polymers can grow from there attached physically to the cotton. Yeah, that's right. And so they're very, very, very resilient. They've washed these things 250 times with actually stainless steel balls in the washing machine just to make it a little bit more challenging. And the property seems to be still there after 250 washes. So as long as you're going somewhere really wet, (laughs) this will be great. But no, I mean, joking aside, why will this be helpful or useful? Why is this better than the wet weather gear we've got if you want to go walking in the mountains at the moment? Well, especially if you're walking somewhere very, very hot, making it more breathable makes your life a lot more pleasant. And so, in fact, you could probably even make things like a shirt fairly waterproof so you wouldn't actually necessarily have to carry a second coat. And also they've suggested it would be really useful in flotation devices, things like life jackets. Because it's so water repellent, um, the water just can't get into this a big mass of kind of insulational buoyancy. And so even if the sort of stuff around the outside of the um, life jacket is broken, um, it still gives you quite a lot of flotation. Or you could just, like people like fishermen who can't wear life jackets because they're dangerous because they can get caught in gear, can just wear a shirt made out of this stuff and it still gives them quite a lot of flotation. Terrific, thank you. Um, Near to production, easily produced? I think probably 
at present using gamma rays is going to cause all sorts of hideous um, kind of legislative problems to actually produce this thing in mass production. So the chemists are going to have to come up with a different way of doing it, but it's very, very promising. All a the good same. proof of principle. Dave, thanks. Well, actually, this week it is National Pathology Week, and all over the country there are going to be people who are trying to show the public what pathologists do in labs. And it's not just about dead bodies. Um, it's also about actually bringing the science of pathology into the public domain so that people can appreciate how pathologists diagnose disease, do tests and that kind of thing. One thing that pathologists routinely end up diagnosing is cancer. And uh, actually one type of cancer, pancreatic cancer, is quite common. It's a cancer that many of us will have heard about because the actor Patrick Swayze died of it in 2005. And the thing about pancreatic cancer is that it usually presents very late. In other words, people by the time they're diagnosed with it often have almost end-stage disease and the survival five years later is really grim. Only about 5 to 10% of people actually go on after about five years. So why, does it, why is it so hard to detect it? Well, probably because the primary cancer develops in a hollow part of the body. The pancreas is in your peritoneal cavity and there's lots of space there. So lesions, big tumours, can actually get really quite large before they begin to press on things or obstruct things or make themselves known in other ways. So as a result, they can become really quite well developed and then have spread around the body usually by the time they're picked up. So researchers really want to get to grips with what actually is the succession? How do these cancers arise genetically? And how long do they take to manifest in the first place? Is there a time when we could detect them early and then intervene? And there's a paper in the journal Nature this week by Christine Yacobuzio Donahue, who's at Johns Hopkins. And what she and her colleagues did were rapid autopsies on seven patients who had died of pancreatic cancer. And what that meant was they could go into the patients and get almost fresh cancer cells from the pancreas itself, from the cancer, but also from the metastases, the deposits of spread around the body. And they could then get DNA out of those tissue samples and then do what they call produce an evolutionary tree genetically for the genetic changes that make the cancer happen because cancers occur because of damage to DNA. So were they getting the tree by looking at different cancers in different places and looking at the differences? That's right. So you sequence through the DNA. This tells you what DNA changes have occurred both in the primary tumour and then in other bits of the primary tumour and then in other metastases around the body. And you can use this like a timeline to work out which bit of the primary tumour and when, in terms of acquiring these changes, spawned off these different metastases. And because we know the rate at which genetic changes occur, in other words, how quickly mutations crop up, it's possible to work out how long someone must have had a cancer for before it produced these metastases and then before it in turn killed the patient. The numbers are really quite staggering. Would you believe actually that most of the people in this study, the seven patients, had had cancer for at least 20 years? which is surprising, isn't it? They found that it takes about 11 and a half to 12 years for an initial set of genetic changes to then turn into a primary cancer inside the pancreas somewhere, and then a further seven years before that primary cancer actually becomes cancerous in the sense that it can begin to spread around the body. But then after that happens, only about two or three years before the person unfortunately dies. In other words, the cancer is there for a very long time, and if we could find a way of detecting it early by going in looking for blood tests and things like that, there's every possibility. If you could pick it up early, you could arrest it before it got to the stage where it would begin to spread, and you could turn that very grim 5 to 10% five-year survival into a 95% survival. Fascinating. 
Now, also this week, uh, we have uh, heard good news that we may not be alone, or at least not so lonely, in the universe as we may be first thought, because researchers in America have announced that as many as 23% of stars like our Sun could have Earth-sized planets orbiting around them. And to explain how they came to this figure and what it means for the search for other worlds, a bit like our own, we're joined now by Dr Andrew Howard, who's at the University of California at Berkeley. Hello, Andrew. Hello. Andrew, tell us first of all, how did you actually do this study? So we used the Keck telescope in Hawaii, and essentially what we did was conduct a census of the planets orbiting the stars nearest to our own solar system. And so we looked at each one of the 166 stars night after night for almost five years. We didn't look at them every single night. Um, but we were able to detect the most massive planets, those planets that are uh, even bigger than Jupiter, as well as less massive planets, those planets that were down to a mass of about three times the mass of the Earth. So we covered this enormous mass range from three Earth masses all the way up to 1,000 Earth masses. And we can't quite detect the Earths, which we'd really like to, but we can extrapolate their numbers based on a really clear trend that we see from having relatively few planets at the high mass end. We see only about one or two Jupiters per 100 stars in our survey. Um, down at the low mass end, we see a lot more planets. At, in the, the 3 to 10 Earth mass range, we see something like 12 planets per 100 stars. And so if you just extrapolate this trend that we, that we see over a very large mass range down to one Earth mass planet, we estimate that about 23% of stars like the Sun have a relatively close-in planet like the Earth. That's a big number, isn't it? 23 is a really big number. This, is, this number has sometimes been called Eta sub-Earth for the Greek character Eta. This is a, a term that's appeared in Frank Drake's equation that's used to estimate the prospects for, for SETI. And Aetis of Earth had remained kind of a mystery. People always wanted to know, are Earth-like planets common or are they rare? And some people estimated that it was 100%. Some people estimated that it was one in a million. We say 23% or about one in four. And to be fair, we had a little bit of an extrapolation here, and I wouldn't be surprised if the true number is one in two or maybe one in eight. But it's not one in a hundred, and that's a really big improvement in our knowledge. If we could visit some of these distant worlds, what would they be like? What's the prospects that they're in the same position relative to their star that our Earth is, and therefore have the kinds of conditions that this planet does? In other words, it's not too hot, not too cold, we've got liquid water. The technique we used is the Doppler method, sometimes called the wobble method. And it turns out that we're most sensitive to planets that are really close to their host stars. So we were only able to detect planets out to a quarter of the Earth-Sun distance. So at that really close orbital distance, if you put the planets inside the solar system, they'd be inside the orbit of Mercury. These are really hot planets. I really seriously doubt that there's life on these specific planets. But what they tell us is that nature makes small planets commonly and deposits them at close orbital distances. And it seems reasonable to suppose that if there are planets at close orbital distances, there are probably planets a little farther out where the radiation from the sun isn't so intense, and these planets might be in the so-called Goldilocks zone or the habitable zone of planets where the temperature is not too hot, not too cold, it's just right for liquid water and perhaps for life to evolve. How does this finding sit with our understanding of how systems like our own do put themselves together and evolve in the first place? It's really interesting. The, the so-called theories of planet formation, there's this, a dominant paradigm which is called the core accretion model, 
And this is a, a model that's been longstanding, and it predicts that most planets in, in all solar systems are born in the outer, the cool outer reaches that far from the host star. And the main reason is because to efficiently make the core of a planet, you need ice. And to, to have ice, you have to be in a cool part of the solar system that is far from the host star. And so this model predicts that most planets are born out there. Some of them grow up to be quite large, the size of Saturn's and Jupiter's, and some do not. Some are a whole range of sizes, from smaller than the Earth to Earth size to a little bit bigger. But the theory also predicts that it's basically only the largest planets, the gas giants like Saturn and Jupiter, that migrate close to their host star. So this theory made a prediction for our observations, and they predicted that that we would only detect large close-in planets, and we shouldn't detect very many small close-in planets. And they actually had a name for this. The theorists called this the planet desert. They predicted there'd be almost no close-in small planets. But instead and you've detected an oasis there, haven't you? You've got a, you've got yeah, a whole load do. of them. One in four of them's it's got a, small planets. It's a tropical rainforest. It's the opposite <laughs> of a desert. So I think there's the, the whole theory of planet formation by core accretion I don't think it needs to be thrown out, but I think that in particular this migration part of it is not right and it needs to be revised. Andrew, thank you for joining us to explain that. That was Andrew Howard. He's from the University of California at Berkeley. He's published that study this week in the journal Science and we'll put more details of that on our website at thenakedscientist.com forward slash news for you to follow up and read a bit more. Dave? Now... Um, scientists have developed a new kind of transistor. Now, almost all of analogue electronics, from cassette players um, to the radio parts of your mobile phone, are based around transistor amplifiers. These are circuits based on transistors, which will take an input signal and amplify the voltage or the current to produce a much larger output. There are two major types of amplifier. Positive gains, where if you increase the input, the output will increase. And negative gain, where if you increase the input, the output decreases. They both involve different physical types of transistor. So if you want an amplifier to do both, the circuit you need gets much more complicated. Because you've got to have two bits of kit. Yeah, and then you need somewhere switching between the two of them and everything gets also a lot more complicated. Now, Zhu Bai Yang and colleagues from Rice University in Houston have been working on transistors in graphene. This is an incredibly promising material for electronics made up of a single layer of carbon, a single layer of graphite. Got the Nobel Prize this year, the yep. graphene chemistry, didn't it? Uh, Andre Geim at the University of Manchester got a Nobel Prize for his, his graphene work off the back of having levitated a frog in a magnetic field, which was his initial uh, claim to fame. I'm not sure they were exactly necessarily related, but certainly the graphene is very, could be very, very important. Now, the transistors they've built change their behaviour entirely depending on the bias voltage you apply to them, changing from positive gain to negative gain through an intermediate um, regime where they can double the frequency of the input. This could possibly produce smaller, cheaper and possibly more power-efficient mobile phones and other radio devices. And as it's made of graphene, which is very, very good high-frequency properties, they could work a lot faster than the present equivalent. Any time soon that we'll be seeing this technology? Um, I think probably the big hold-up is finding a way of mass-producing graphene, which certainly isn't... It shouldn't be too difficult. It's a lot simpler than mass-producing systems made of carbon nanotubes and things like that. But it's not bog-standard yet, so they're going to have to develop the technology to do that before they can start implementing these transistors. So it could take a few years. So making your better PC chips and that kind of thing is not yet a PC of cake, is it? I don't think it's ever been a piece of cake. <laughs> Boom. Thank you, Dave. Now, lastly this week... There's new insights into how the brain focuses attention on things. Now, it's been a long-standing question. Here we are in a room. We're being assailed by sensory information all the time. There's visual information coming in. There's 
thermal information, how warm or cold you feel, there's the sensation of the clothes against your skin and all this kind of thing. But how do we focus our attention on just a fraction of that sensory information and zone out all of the rest? Really hard to know because to do that you need to do really quite invasive brain experiments which are often not ethical or permissible on humans. But occasionally an opportunity presents itself. And there's a group of researchers led by Moran Cerf who's at Caltech in America and they have done this very study on 12 patients who were undergoing studies to work out why they had epilepsy. Because in some people the only way to treat epilepsy is to find out which bit of the brain is misbehaving and you do that by implanting electrodes into the brain tissue to then register the brain activity and then you can in inactivate or burn out the small bit of the brain which is misbehaving and this cures the epilepsy. So what this group did was to team up with the doctors who had put these electrodes into these 12 epileptic patients into the middle part of their brain and they asked the patients to look at some photographs and they showed them a whole range of different photographs, over 100 different pictures of familiar people, famous people like Bill Clinton, Marilyn Monroe, fruits and vegetables, buildings, all that kind of thing. And the idea was they were looking for an electrode, in other words, corresponding to one or two, just a small clutch of nerve cells that only fired off when it saw a specific picture because they were interested in recording from the part of the brain that, that deals with memory. So this was just by sort of fluke that it happened to be in the right place to triggered by that picture. Yeah. So there's an electrode which happens by sheer fluke to correspond to a group of neurons that register that particular thing that that bit of the brain is interested in. So they flash up when that picture comes up. And what they then did, once they'd identified four such electrodes that corresponded to four independent pictures, they said to the subjects, right, we're going to put you in front of a computer screen. We are going to show you a montage of two pictures each time. One of the pictures is going to be transparently superimposed in front of the other one, so you can see both, but they're sort of greyed out. And by thinking about one of them, the computer will make the picture you're thinking about become more opaque and the other one will fade away. Just try and do this by thinking by whatever strategy you want about the picture that we tell you we want you to think about. So say they flashed up a picture of Marilyn Monroe superimposed on Bill Clinton the subjects would then think Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton, and they could actually make the computer, by recording the activity coming off these electrodes, grey out the picture of Marilyn Monroe and bring Bill Clinton into the foreground. And they did this with 69% success every single time, within just half an hour of being plugged into the system. And so this enabled them then to ask the question, right, how does the brain focus its attention on what it wants to look at? And the way they got to that was to say, right, when they asked them to think about Bill Clinton... Did the brain then increase the signal about Bill Clinton from those neurons or did it suppress the activity about Marilyn Monroe or the other things? And it was the latter. The brain seems to focus your attention by suppressing activity about distracting things and therefore leaving the signal pure for the thing that you're most interested in. So this is really the first time we've got, the, got to grips with how the brain shifts your attention and focuses on things. And it could also be useful as a means of enabling people who are paralysed, for example, to control computers because it's the first time anyone's done anything quite this ambitious and quite so simply too. Brilliant. The Naked Scientist's Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.